you want to go ahead and turn there. But we face quite a challenge in our society today. Uh, v- marriage has been devalued. Uh, we uh, begin, I mean, marriage has always had its uh, opponents. And many years ago, the concept of a no-fault divorce uh, came into being, at least here in our country, and uh, divorces became easier and easier to get. And then we've had more recent attacks on traditional marriage with uh, gay marriages and that type of thing. And now, uh, with the proliferance of living together, uh, before marriage and, and sometimes just living together uh, outside of marriage has become prominent. And so the reality is, is that marriage has been devalued. And Jesus wants us to return, or the people of his kingdom, to return to a biblical uh, understanding of marriage based upon Genesis chapter 2. And we began last time, it's been a couple weeks ago since I've been up here, but uh, we began the last time looking at God's ideal for marriage. And this week I want us to look at the reality of divorce. And so as we begin this morning, we see, we, it, just recalling from last time, that God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman united as one flesh for one lifetime. It's God's plan for marriage is for a man to leave his parents and become loyal to his wife. And this marriage is consummated physically by the couple and united spiritually by God. And so God is the one who separates the bond by the death of one of the spouses. That's God's prescribed method for ending a marriage is through death. That's the ideal for marriage. And we looked at that ideal last time. Let's read verses 1 through 6 to kind of catch the context of today's passage. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him, And tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. So when a man and woman are joined in marriage, it should never be separated by the actions of a man. Again, this is the ideal for marriage. But I have no doubt that all of us here uh, know a friend or a family member who has been involved in a divorce. And the scriptures do deal with divorce. That's one thing about the Bible. It is very applicable For our lives, no matter what time period we live in, it applies. And so 
The scriptures do deal with divorce. That's what the Pharisees recognize here, and they're trying to pin Jesus as an unbiblical teacher. In our passage, we're told that they're trying to test him. And so when Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, we have the response of the Pharisees in verse 7. Probably, if you want to think, they're like, aha, we've got you. Matthew 19, 7, Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now the Pharisees are referring to a passage in Deuteronomy 24. It's on your handout there. I'll just read it to you. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, former husband who sent her away, may not take her after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, in a nutshell, this passage is teaching that a man, if a man divorces his wife for some reason other than sexual immorality and marries another person, then if she's freed from her second marriage, the first husband may not marry her again. The certificate of divorce was put into place to make sure rash decisions were not made and to protect the woman so that she had proof that she was not in a marriage relationship and therefore was able to marry again. However, in Jesus' day, the rabbis had begun to debate the meaning of some indecency in her. Okay, and one commentator uh, gives this background to it. Okay, so there's a couple different schools of teachers that were teaching what does this mean, this matter of indecency in her. The school of Hillel interpreted this matter of indecency in the widest possible way. They said that it meant that a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. If she spun or went with unbound hair or spoke to men in the streets. If she spoke disrespectfully of his parents in in his presence. If she was a brawling woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. Rabbi Akiba even went the length of saying that the phrase, if she finds no favor in his eyes, meant that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman who he liked better and considered more beautiful. That's one commentator's background uh, on the history behind this question. So that's the reason for the Pharisees' initial question. And the Pharisees were concerned mostly about their own self-righteousness, okay? And and so their initial question here, is it lawful? In other words, can can I divorce my wife for any reason and still be considered righteous? Is it a lawful thing? 
Can I divorce her for any cause? Jesus' response shocked the Pharisees. Because Jesus stated that God's plan for marriage is that it should never be separated. It would only be separated by God himself and not by any man or court system. Now, no doubt the Pharisees think that they have Jesus cornered here. Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus' answer reveals the reality of divorce. The reality of divorce, we see it in verse 8 of Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. The reality of divorce here. Now, it's important for us to remember in the, in the giving of the law, because that's the context. Jesus is talking about the beginning, and they didn't have the law in the beginning. That didn't come until much later when Moses came along and God gave the law through Moses. So Jesus says, in the beginning it was not so, but we need to remember in the Deuteronomy passage, that is the law, it is being given. But part of the law was the punishment for adultery was what? Death. Death. Okay, so you committed adultery and you got caught, you were to be put to death. You and the person that was caught in adultery with you. We find that in Leviticus 20, verses 10 through 20. Uh, there's also, it's not just adultery, there's a, for a lot of other different causes of sexual immorality in Leviticus 20. But the one that pertains here to our discussion is in verse 10. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So the penalty for adultery was death, which legally ended the marriage. The remaining spouse would be free to be married. We should also remember that the Old Testament laws laid out what was legally acceptable as punishment. If the offended husband or wife were to have compassion on their spouse, reconciliation was always a possibility. As well, while death of the offending spouse was legally accepted, in mercy, the offended spouse could divorce them. And we see an example of this in the New Testament uh, when Joseph sought to divorce Mary secretly in order to protect her from public disgrace. And in Matthew 119, we're told that Joseph desired to do this because he was a righteous man. Now, what does this tell us about Jesus' interpretation of the Deuteronomy passage that states, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her? Well, Jesus believes that the person who is sinning in this passage is not the wife but the husband. The sinning person is the man. It's because of the hardness of heart of the man that Moses allowed you to divorce your wife, is what Jesus is saying to them. The man has hardened his heart against his wife and desires to divorce her for some reason other than sexual immorality. The Pharisees were looking to the passage in Deuteronomy and seeking a way to divorce their wives and maintain their righteousness. Jesus corrected their interpretation by revealing the sinfulness 
of the man's actions in the Deuteronomy passage. God's intention from the beginning of creation was not for divorce to be considered morally acceptable. So ideally, divorce should never happen. But God allows divorce because of the sinfulness of man. The reality of divorce is that it always involves sin. The reality of divorce is that it always involves sin in either one party or both. So he says in verse 9, we see some of the results of improper divorce. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The results here of improper divorce are adultery. To drive home his point that the man is sinful, Jesus makes this amazing statement. Unless there is sexual immorality involved as the reason for the divorce, a subsequent remarriage results in an act of adultery. (coughs) Jesus points out that when the man remarries, he will be committing adultery. He is committing adultery when he consummates his next marriage. His divorce, which was separated by man, was not separated by God. Now you may ask, how do you know this? Well, in the passage referred to by the Pharisees in Deuteronomy, had the woman committed adultery or some other act of sexual immorality? No. We're only told that she's lost favor with her husband because he has found some indecency in her. Yet in a similar debate, earlier in the book of Matthew, we read this. So Matthew 5, it's also on your handout, or if you want to turn over in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, In a similar debate, earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus is teaching on divorce. And he is giving his authoritative take on it. Matthew 5, 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery here jesus points out that the woman who's been divorced by her husband will be committing adultery in her next marriage when improperly divorced now how could this be when she has her divorce papers well it's because god has not recognized the improper divorce God's spiritual union is still intact until the new marriage is consummated. But notice where the blame lies for this act of adultery in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It's on the husband who improperly divorced his wife. It says he makes her commit adultery. In other words, he's the one that is held responsible for this adulterous act, not the woman. It falls on her former husband who improperly divorces her. Now, this this is being uh, where responsibility comes in and where God places the responsibility. We see something similar uh, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He was held accountable not only for the adultery with Bathsheba, but what was he also accused of? 
he murdered Uriah. But let me ask you, did David murder Uriah with his hands, with his own hands? No, he sent him with orders to the general and said, put him up front where there's a high likelihood that he'll be killed. But God held David responsible for that. So some, some enemy of God, or of God's armies, is the one who literally killed Uriah. But the blame was placed on David. And so that's what we see here. The sinning husband who improperly divorces his wife is causing adultery to be committed, but he's going to be the one held responsible. If you have questions about that afterwards, let me know. But the improper divorce is a result of sin and results in the sin of adultery by all, all parties involved. Now, some of you here may be thinking, Pastor, I was divorced for improper reasons, but I've been remarried. Am I living in a state of adultery? Let me say to you, no. No. And you should remain in the marriage that you are currently in and make that marriage glorify God until death do you part. In other words, two wrongs don't make a right. Now, how can I say that you're not living in adultery when you remarry? I think it's because that God doesn't put his saints in situations where it's impossible to live righteously for him. I base that upon 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So when you consummated your new marriage, there was a single act of adultery that your ex was made responsible for. And then your new marriage was spiritually bound by God. Okay, so the, the act of adultery breaks the previous marriage and, and consummation then consummates the new marriage. Okay, and the, in, in, a, in the case of an improper divorce, the sin of adultery is accounted to the one who was imp, that improperly sought the divorce. Again, I repeat here, Jesus is speaking about a single act of adultery for which your ex is held accountable, not a lifetime of living in adultery. In fact, Paul wrote to those who were unmarried and widows about God's grace in remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, it says, To the unmarried and the widows. Okay, so now unmarried is single people who've never been married, and it's single people who have been divorced. Okay, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, So we don't want to live in a constant state of lust whenever marriage can help with that. Okay, So if you're divorced, then it's okay for you to be remarried. One act of adultery when the marriage is consummated is better than living in a, life, uh, a lifetime of lust. So divorce for improper reasons leads to a single act of adultery by all parties involved upon the remarriage. So divorce is a result of sin, and it results in sin. But then Jesus also gives us a reason for a lawful divorce. Whoever divorces his wife, in verse 9, except for sexual immorality. Here's what's commonly referred to as the exception clause for divorce. In other words, divorce is sinful in all cases, except when sexual immorality is involved by your spouse. Now, what is classified as sexual immorality? 
From Leviticus 20, verses 10 through 16, we see several different sexually immoral things. I've put them on your hand out there. There's adultery, there's homosexual intercourse, there's pedophilia, and bestiality. If your spouse commits sexual immorality, then it is acceptable for you to divorce them and be remarried. There will be no act of adultery on your part when you remarry. If your spouse and you are both Christians, when you encounter problems, you are to remain married and work out your problems through the transforming power of the gospel. Okay, So if, it, if your problems are not sexual immorality then your problems are things that need to be worked through by God's grace. The scriptures also have a concession for unchristian divorce and abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7.12 talks about if, if a spouse is going to insist upon the divorce, you, you try to work it out, but you're not, if they leave you uh, and abandon you for some reason, uh, then you are okay to divorce. You're not responsible to chase them all over the country. I know in Texas law, one of the valid reasons for divorce is if your husband is incarcerated or if your spouse is incarcerated, they have essentially abandoned you. That's one of their ways of recognizing this law of abandonment that happens. First Corinthians seven twelve, Paul says, to the rest say I, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now that just means that there's, there's a sanctifying effect of a Christian being in the home. doesn't mean that, an, uh, that a saved spouse can make their, their spouse saved okay it's just that there's a there's a purifying effect of a christian being in there but verse 15 but if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved god has called you to peace so if there's an insisting upon divorce by the uh by one party then you, there's just times when the hardness of heart comes in and it's okay to just let that divorce happen. So if your spouse is an unbeliever and insists upon a divorce or simply abandons you, then it is acceptable to divorce them. You're not bound to chase them all over creation trying to reconcile a hopeless situation. And then I would also add this. The Bible also teaches the principles of self-defense in the book of Exodus. And, and from principles of self-defense, I would say that I believe it is acceptable and even advisable in certain situations for a person in a physically abusive relationship to divorce their spouse in order to protect their life or to protect the lives of their children. I do not believe a wife is bound to her husband and to, to endanger her life in cases of abuse. So I would put it this way, God's concessions for divorce are sexual immorality, abandonment, and abuse. Those three categories. Now let's look to Matthew 19 verses 10 through 12 and see the reaction of the disciples 
to this teaching that Jesus has on divorce. And let me just say up front as we get into it, it's not great. Okay, so, so when, we look, when we look at this story, the, the characters in the story are the Pharisees, Jesus, and the disciples. <clears throat> and we've seen the Pharisees, and they're trying to finagle things and trap Jesus. And Jesus gives the, God's teaching on marriage. And the response of the disciples is, well, okay, marriage must not be good. I mean, look what they say. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They must be hard to live with, right? Or they don't have a very high value of women. It's better not to marry if you can't get divorced for any reason. Verse 11, but Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. In other words, there are valid reasons for a person to just not be married. One is God has not given them the ability to procreate. God has stepped in. They've been so from birth. But then there are others who have been made eunuchs by men. And in Old Testament times, like David and his fellows, or not David, Daniel, Daniel and his fellows, when they were taken captive into Babylon, it is very likely that they were made eunuchs to serve in the king's court. And there, that, there were no divided loyalties and problems. They were, they were going to be dedicated to the king's service. In our day, we don't have that happening, uh, thankfully, uh, at least not here in the United States. But we do have men uh, making people eunuchs with sex transition surgeries and different things like this and these puberty blockers and things like that. There are people who are being turned against their nature basically into eunuchs. So some have been made eunuchs by men. But then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that would be Paul himself. Paul remained unmarried in the passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, look, I think it's better if you don't marry. Not because divorce... And because living with someone is hard. But he just wants, he wants people to be so focused on the kingdom. And for, for Paul, he felt that marriage would be a distraction to his ability to be able to serve the Lord. And so he dedicated himself to the kingdom in that way. For, for many others, and Peter being one of them, they had, they had a wife and have a wife. And I have a wife and she has made my ministry better uh, to others. But those are the three different categories. So we need to depend on the grace of God to transform our lives and our marriages to be all they can be. We married Christians have a need for divine dependence. But also single folks have a need to rely on divine dependence until such a time as God provides a spouse for them. Or should he not provide a spouse? 
But we find here the disciples basically saying it's just better to live a life of celibacy than to take the chance of ending up in a bad marriage. And, and our society, I believe, is, is doing a lot of things to deter marriage. They're encouraging people to put off getting married until they're much later in life. And they're saying, look, you need to get your career established. And you need to get uh, financially stable before you get married. And, and, you know, then it goes out, have a home, have a car, you know, have a dog, whatever. I mean, they, they just push, they push off marriage. And then along with that is the teaching that it comes through abortion and different things that children are bad. And so then, then and children are a hindrance and that type of thing. And, and so, so we have these two things working together, that children are a burden and that you need to be established in your own career and your own life before you get married. And so we have marriage being pushed off until later in life. And I would encourage you, don't be afraid to get married because the marriage might fail. Get into marriage and make it work by God's grace. Okay? Kim and I married relatively young. I think I was 22-ish, somewhere around in there. Was it always easy? Nope. Our marriage is a lot better now than it was back then. But it's been a, it's been a blessing through the years to work at me living with my wife in an understanding way and being a better husband and her living and learning uh, how, how to live with me and to, to show respect when she's disagreeing with me and and me learning to be sacrificial like Christ was and and working together and becoming one and moving our marriage forward and I would say this the 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 younger you start the better it'll be sooner (laughs) because it doesn't come right away okay so I encourage you know your career is not important, more important than your marriage. Your marriage, Lord willing, will outlast your career. So which one's more important? Your children, Lord willing, will outlive your career. So which one's more important? Our world has twisted things. And it's twisted marriage and the goodness of marriage. And I would say to you today, don't believe the lies. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Marriage is a blessed thing. It's not necessarily easy, but good things seldom are. Let's be people of God that demonstrate the goodness of God's creation order and God's mandate for marriage. And let's live for the glory of God. So celibacy is only for certain individuals made that way by birth, by man, or by commitment to the kingdom of God. Marriage is for everyone else. But everyone must rely upon God to live a gospel-transformed life that glorifies him. So as we conclude this short series, two messages about Jesus on sex, marriage, and divorce... We recognize that God's ideal is that there would be no divorce. In fact, all divorces are a result of sin, either sexual immorality or abandonment or abuse 
or because one of the spouse's hardness of heart. And because of our sinfulness, God mercifully has a concession for divorce in cases of sexual immorality, abandonment, or physical abuse. Now, because of the prevalency of divorce, I don't want you to sit here this morning and you say, man, I've been divorced. I want to say this very clearly to you. You are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Do you hear me? You're a sinner saved by grace, just like me, just like the others here. Okay? And, and if there was improper divorce, perhaps you were the reason or you were the cause for that improper divorce. Go to God and what do we do when we sin? We repent and we ask for forgiveness, right? We repent and we ask for forgiveness and then we go forward for the Lord. And so if you've been divorced and remarried for whatever the reasons, and, and if there was sin on your part, then just repent. And then ask God to bless your current marriage and make it glorify him. And, and look, if you have kids, you can talk to them about that, right? That, that you don't now, you, you did divorce, but, but now you're, you don't believe in that. It, that's okay to change your mind on things, right? Look, I lied a lot before I got saved. That doesn't make it right, and that doesn't mean I teach my kids it's okay to lie. Now that I'm a Christian, I raise my kids to be truthful. It's what we want. It's God's ideal, right? So we want to teach God's ideal. Whether we live up to it or not, we want to teach God's ideal. And so understand you're not a second-class citizen. You're just a sinner saved by grace. And this world's affected by sin. And it's affected by our sin. But let's repent of our part in that and live for God's glory. Everyone, whether in or out of a marriage relationship, must rely upon God to live a transformed life that glorifies him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Your ideal for marriage, Lord, we also recognize the reality of divorce. And Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for Jesus Christ who came and died for our sins so that we in our marriages can picture the marriage that we now have with Christ being his body, being made one with him. Father, I pray that the marriages of the membership here at Faith Baptist Church will honor you and that they will glorify you and they will represent your good rule and reign on this earth. And Father, we look forward to that day when we will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb and be with you for eternity. But until then, Lord, help us to work at our marriages and help us to to be gracious with our spouses and to live godly lives we ask it in jesus name amen